Welcome to Taboo and Murder. Please rate, subscribe, review, all those good things on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. If this is your first time listening, I swear frequently, I interject my opinions that are just that opinions regularly because, well, it's my podcast and it's going to happen. I do the research to put the episodes together. I record on my own. And for now, I'm not editing. There are several reasons why I'm not editing, but basically it all comes back to time. And some of my favorite podcasts have a loose conversational quality. If you're looking for hard facts, please see the source links on Twitter. I hope to have someone else edit in the future, but for now it's just me, and I'd end up editing to the point of silence. Thank you to those who have given suggestions. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and reach out. Okay, on with the show. Somehow, every episode is darker than the last. So let's all top off our drinks and buckle the fuck up to mix metaphors or euphemisms. But for real, don't drink and drive. And don't use Uber if you can help it. They're the worst. Actually, The Dollop has an episode all about how atrocious Uber actually is. Check it out. Anyway, don't drink and drive. Get a Lyft. They're way better than Uber. Cheaper, too, because they don't have the same price gouging system. Anyway, enough about Uber. On to genocide. Yay! I will be focusing on genocide only. I will not get into eugenics in this episode because it's crazy enough on its own. It warrants its own episode. Um, But did you know that Charles Lindbergh, yes, the father of the Lindbergh baby, was way into eugenics? And it's widely believed that he actually killed his child. The child wasn't kidnapped. Um, and he killed his child, uh, allegedly, allegedly, um, because he, the child had some kind of, uh, like mental deficiencies. Um, I don't know about you, but it certainly changes how I felt about the dude and allegedly don't sue me Lindbergh family. Okay. So genocide is a deliberate and systematic destruction in whole or in part of an ethnic, racial, religious, or national group. The term wasn't coined until 1944. Crazy timing, right? I think we're all familiar with the Holocaust, and we all think it is an atrocity, unless Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is listening. Wow, that was a really impressive international burn. Okay, so ripped from the headlines of Wikipedia, determining the historical events constitute a genocide in which a merely criminal or inhumane behavior is not a clear-cut matter. In nearly every case where accusations of genocide have circulated, partisans of various sides have fiercely disputed the details and interpretation of the event, often to the point of depicting wildly different versions of the facts. Right. We all do it. Whitewashing is certainly something that we've done a time or two. And that above mentioned sick burn against Ahmadinejad, the victor writes the history differently than the vanquished. In America, we are always the winner. Example, the war in Iraq. We won that almost two decades ago. The Holocaust is the most well-known genocide in recent history, but most certainly was not and is not the only one. Declaring us superior to another exists in every time period and every culture at some point. There are outliers in small numbers, but the vast majority of history will feature the oppression and discrimination of some group, and the most extreme forms are found in slavery and genocide, among others, sure, but those two pop in my head. Also, God, I'm never going to get to any material, but when I say we or us in this episode or in this podcast in general, I don't mean we as in Americans or women or white people or moms or podcast lovers. I just mean human beings. So any we's, they's, us's, or them's refers to people as a collective humanity or lack thereof in this episode, faux show. So, um... Getting back to my notes here, uh, another way to say that would be, according to the Canadian scholar Adam Jones, if a dominant group of people has little in common with a marginalized group of people, it is easy for the dominant group to define the other as subhuman. As a result, the marginalized group might be labeled as a threat that must be eliminated. Jones continues, the difficulty, as Frank Chalk and Kurt Johannesson point out in their early study, 
notes on Twitter, is that such historical records that exist are ambiguous and undependable. While history today is generally written with some fealty to objective facts, clearly this was written before Trump became president, most previous accounts aimed rather to praise the writer's patron, normally the leader, and to emphasize that the superiority of one's own gods and religious beliefs. Okay, so back on track to Trump. That explains it all, really. Trumpism is a religion, he is the god, and there's no proof anyone can give that he isn't a god. Maybe if his tax returns are released? No, I don't think that would even do it. Hmm. I'll have to sort this epiphany out later. Okay, so Chuck and Johannesson. Historically and anthropologically, people have always had a name for themselves. In a great many cases, that name meant the people to set the owners of that name off against all other people who were considered of lesser quality in some way. If the differences between the people and some other society were particularly large in terms of religion, language, manners, customs, and so on, then such others were seen as less than fully human, pagans, savages, and even animals. Disclaimer. The debate continues over what legally constitutes genocide. One definition is any conflict that the International Criminal Court has so designated. Many conflicts that have been labeled genocide in the popular press have not been so designated because international politics always action fast, you know. So we bring up Hitler and the Holocaust as benchmarks for the lowest of the low and for good fucking reason. A few stats to refresh your memory on the breadth of the horror that was the Holocaust. Approximately 9.5 million, or 60% of the world's Jews, lived in Europe before 1933. Six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. Six million. I think the current population of Minnesota hangs around four million. Fuck. The number of Jews in Europe dropped to 3.5 million in 1950, of which about two million were in the USSR. Of those 6 million killed by the motherfucking Nazis, 1.1 million were children. Seriously, fuck you Nazis. Tiki torch carrying variety and all. The number of homosexuals killed by Nazis is estimated to be between 3 and 9,000. The number of mentally ill or physically disabled put to death by Nazis is approximately 200,000. Roma, or more commonly known as gypsies, um, the gypsy people were killed by Germans at a rate of between 220,000 and 500,000. The number of camps, prisons, and other facilities of incarceration within Germany and the lands it occupied was 40,000 at its highest. There were six main um, extermination camps. All were located in Poland, Auschwitz being the most well-known. Uh, there were a number of cities that essentially forced Jews into closed ghettos, um, a number reaching as high as 1,100. So a few good stats now. The number of Nazi war criminals imprisoned after being convicted between 1945 and 1985 was over 10,000. Also, because Minnesota, a 98-year-old Minnesota man, Michael Karkok, I think Karkok, was extradited in Poland in March of this year, so 2018, after it was confirmed he was responsible for over 44 deaths in 1944. Taboo take here. People claim diminished capacity and all kinds of pro-grandpa shit trying to use his age as a reason he shouldn't pay for the war crimes he committed. Fuck that. He's someone's dad. He's someone's grandpa. He's also the person that took the futures from 44 families. Fuck that dude. He stole decades of breath. The Golden State Killer was caught after decades, and that piece of shit needs to be held accountable for his crimes, too. It's incredibly sad for the family to find out that a family member, member had such skeletons, no pun intended, in their closet. I'd counter any sympathy argument by saying that the perpetrator's family members are victims too, often the final victims, like in the case of the Golden State Killer, which I could do an impromptu episode on GSK, like 
right now, but it's so well covered and there's really nothing I can contribute to the conversation other than just gushing about the fucking insanity that that entire case is and was. Okay, from one monster, back to many. The number of Nazi war criminals executed during that same time period of 1945 to 85 was 5,000. Minneapolis resident Michael Carcock should have been among this group for his alleged role as a top commander, in my opinion. The personal stories of the Holocaust are plentiful. You've probably read Anne Frank. So the Holocaust is the worst by any metric in modern day history. It's certainly the most infamous, but it wasn't the first act of genocide. Neanderthals or Neanderthals, however you want to pronounce it, died off in the late 1400s. Hypothesis is suggesting that genocidal violence may have caused the extinction of Neanderthals, may have offered or have been offered rather by several authors offered by several authors. That's a tongue twister. Okay, so a hypothesis, Neanderthals killed off by genocide. It's a theory by several authors, including Jared Diamond and Ronald Wright. However, several scholars have formed alternative ideas as to why Neanderthals died off. So there's no clear consensus, consensus in the scientific community. Something to, you know, ponder. Ancient gender sides are not considered genocide statistically. Scholars of antiquity differentiate between genocide and gendercide in which males were killed but the children, particularly the girls and women, were incorporated into the conquering group. You know, rape, pillage, murder, the standard. The 13th century Mongol armies under Genghis Khan were genocidal killers who were known to eradicate whole nations. He ordered the extermination of the Tata Mongols and the Konkalis males in Burkhara taller than a wheel using a technique called measuring against the linchpin. In the end, half of the Mongol tribes were um, exterminated by Genghis Khan. Wow, half. That's pretty fucking cray. Okay, so Wu Hu and Hamin Chi. And I looked up pronunciation, so that is right. Or take it up with Google Translate. Thank you. Ancient Chinese texts record that General Ron Min ordered the extermination of the Wu Hu, especially the Ha Chi people, during the Wei He War in the 4th century AD. People with racial characteristics such as high-bridged noses and bushy beards were killed. In total, 200,000 were reportedly massacred. The Congo Free State in Central Africa was privately controlled by Leopold II of Belgium, who extracted a fortune from the land by the use of forced labor of natives. Slavery. I'm adding slavery to that quote. Under his regime, there were 2 to 15 million deaths. Come on, people. 2 to 15 million. Like, let's give a better range than that. These are not political polls. Boom. Okay, so anyway, 2 to 15 million deaths among the Congolese people. Deliberate killings, abusive punishments, and general exploitation were major causes of the deaths. As in the colonialization of the Americas, new diseases hereto unknown in the region also led to a considerable number of deaths. Because the main motive for the killings was financial gain, it has been debated whether the term genocide describes these atrocities well. However, Robert Weisbord wrote in the Journal of Genocide Research in 2003 that attempting to eliminate a portion of the population is enough to qualify as genocide under the UN Convention. Reports of the atrocities led to a major international scandal in the early 20th century, and Leopold was ultimately forced in 1908 by the Belgian government to relinquish control of the colony to the civil administration. Do you consider this genocide? Based on my research, it was genocide. We just don't want to label certain acts as genocide because then we have culpability and responsibility to do something based on agreements that we've made, my opinion. So the pacification of uh, Algeria. Ben Kiernan wrote in his book, Blood and Soil, a world history of genocide and extermination from Sparta to Darfur, on the French conquest of Algeria that within three decades of the French conquest of Algeria in 1830, 
War, famine, and disease had reduced the original population from 3 million to a figure ranging from 500,000 to 1 million. By 1875, the French conquest was complete. The war had killed approximately 18, or 825,000 indigenous Algerians since 1830. A long shadow of genocidal hatred persisted, provoking the French author to protest in 1882 that in Algeria, we hear it repeated every day that we must expel the native and, if necessary, destroy him. As a French statistical journal urged five years later, the system of extermination must give way to a policy of penetration. In response to France's recognition of Armenian genocide, Turkey accused France of committing genocide against 15% of Algeria's population. So a whole bunch of colonies trying to wipe out indigenous people. A tale as old as time. According to historian David Standard, over the course of more than four centuries, from the 1490s to the 1900s, Europeans and white Americans engaged in an unbroken string of genocide campaigns against the native peoples of the Americas. The indigenous peoples of the Americas experienced massacres, torture, terror, sexual abuse, systematic military occupations, removals, removals of indigenous peoples from their ancestral territories, forced removal of Native American children to military-like boarding schools, allotment, and a policy of termination. From the earliest years of colonialism, conquistadors brazenly would advocate genocide against the Native population, in the 1700s, British militia would bring smallpox-exposed blankets to Native American emissaries as gifts at Ford Pitt. To convey the smallpox to the Indians in, is one of the most famously documented cases of germ warfare. While it is uncertain how successful such attempts were against the target populations, historians have noted that History records numerous records rather numerous instances of the French, the Spanish, the British, and later the Americans using smallpox as a means to an end. For smallpox was more feared by the Indian than the bullet. He could be exterminated and subjugated more easily and quickly by the death-bringing virus than by the weapons of the white man. The British high commander Jeffrey Amherst authorized the intentional use of disease as a biological weapon against indigenous populations during the Pontiac's Rebellion, saying, You will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to extirpate, I think is what that's supposed to say, a race. And instructing his sub subordinates, I need only add, I wish to hear of no prisoners should any of the villains be met with arms. So dude wanted them all dead and made that pretty clear. When smallpox swept through the northern plains in the U.S. in 1837, Secretary of War Lewis Cass ordered that the Mandan, along with the Cree and the Blackfeet, not be given smallpox vaccinations which had been provided to other tribes in other areas. Cool, 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 cool. Okay, so some historians disagree that genocide defined as a crime of intent should be used to describe the colonization experience. I bet those historians are white. Stafford Poole, I'm white. I'm just, make that clear, I am white, but white people are terrible sometimes, a lot of the time. Stafford Poole, a research historian, wrote, There are other terms to describe what happened in the Western Hemisphere, but genocide is not one of them. It is a good propaganda term in an age where slogans and shouting have replaced reflection and learning, but to use it in the context is to cheapen both the word itself and the appalling experiences of the Jews and Armenians to mention but two of the major victims of this century. Bullshit. Same as terrorism. Put the right fucking label on it and people have to act differently. 
words have power and not just that bullshit that the, you know, pen is mightier than the sword. While that is true, the pen is usually mightier in the sword. This is my opinion when it is um, going to oppress people, not when it's trying to build people up. Anywho, be back to genocide. So propaganda, it is appalling and insulting to the Jews and Armenians. Um, goes on to say, um, so not label genocide, um, when it's not applicable, he sees these views as a sad fate of the Native Americans, um, but not a crime, but a tragedy involving an irreconcilable collision of cultures and values. It's I'm just going to say it's not irreconcilable that people had to show up and steal your land. That's 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 just not the right perspective to be having, I guess, as a historian, as my opinion, as a non-historian. I just have a podcast. Any hoozleby. I love that. I have to stop saying it, though. That's Gareth's. Okay, so getting back, the new Americans, convinced of their cultural and racial superiority, were unwilling to grant the original inhabitants of the continent the vast preserve of land required by the Indians' way of life. David Cook, writing about the Black legend and the conquest of the Americas, wrote, There were too few Spaniards to have killed the millions who were reported to have died in the first century after Old and New World contact. Cook acknowledged that it is impossible to factor out and weigh precisely each of these causes that led to the collapse of the American Indian society. Native American Studies Professor Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz says proponents of the default position emphasize attrition by disease despite other causes equally deadly if not more so. In doing so, they refuse to accept that the colonization of America was genocidal by plan, not simply the tragic fate of populations lacking immunity to disease. In the case of the Jewish Holocaust, no one denies that more Jews died of starvation, overwork, and disease under Nazi incarceration than died in gas ovens, yet the acts of creating and mainstreaming the conditions that led to those deaths clearly constitute genocide. Preach, lady, preach. Historian David Standard writes that by the year 1769, the destruction of the American Aboriginal population down to just one third of of the world. Excuse me, I'm going to start over on that sentence. Historian David Standard writes that by the year 1769, the destruction of the American Aboriginal population was down to just one third of 1% of the total American population of 76 million. Wow. The most massive genocide in world history. And that there was at last almost no one left to kill. According to anthropologist Russell Thornton, for the American Indians, the arrival of the Europeans marked the beginning of a long holocaust. Although it came not in ovens as it did for the Jews, the fires that consumed North America Indians were the fevers brought on by newly encountered diseases and flashes of settlers and soldiers' guns, the ravages of fire water, the flames of villages and fields burned by the scorched earth policy of vengeful vengeful Euro-Americans. David Quammen likened colonial American practices toward Native Americans to those of Australia toward its aboriginal populations, calling both genocide. Some authors, including Holocaust scholar David Sereni, have argued that the United States government policies in furtherance of its so-called manifest destiny constituted genocide. Several works on the subject were released around the year 1992 to coincide with the 500th anniversary of Columbus's voyage. In 2003, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez urged Latin Americans not to celebrate the Columbus Day holiday. Chavez blamed Columbus for spreading the biggest invasion and genocide ever seen in the history of humanity. It's not every day that I'm like, yeah, Chavez preach. What interesting times we live in. 
The Indian or First Nation residential schools were primarily active following the passage of the Indian Act in 1876 until 1996. Oh, we're up in Canada. Sorry. And were designed to remove children from the influence of their families and culture and assimilate them into the dominant Canadian culture. Over the course of the system's existence, about 30% of Native children, or roughly 150,000, were placed in residential schools nationally. At least 6,000 of these students died, died while in attendance. The system has been described as cultural genocide, killing the Indian in the child. The executive summary of the Truth and Reconciliation Com Commission found that physical genocide, biological genocide, and cultural genocide all occurred physical through abuse, biological through the distribution of reproductive capacity, and cultural through forced assimilation. Part of this process during the 1960s through the 1980s, dubbed in the 60s, uh, dubbed the 60s scoop, rather, was investigated and the child seizures deemed genocidal by Judge Edwin Kemlin, who wrote, you took a child from his or her specific culture and you placed, it, placed him into a foreign culture Without any counseling, assistance to the family which had the child, there is something dramatically and basically wrong with that. Yeah, it sounds oddly familiar with some things that are happening on our southern border right now. I will have an episode regarding the less dead, which will include indigenous women specifically at a later date. In May 1994... The then-Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, admitted that resistance to the Tsarist forces was legitimate, but he did not recognize the guilt of the Tsarist movement for the genocide. In 1997 and 1998, the leaders—oh, I cut this part. I'm sorry. I cut so many <laughs> notes because this episode was going to be, like, 25 pages, and I usually shoot for, like, 12 to 14. Apologies. Okay, so the potato famine. A small minority of historians regard the Irish potato famine, 1845 to 1852-ish, as an example of genocide. During the famine, approximately one million people died and a million more emigrated from Ireland. A lot of those come into the U.S., causing the island's population to fall by between 20 and 25%. The proximate cause of famine was a potato disease commonly known as potato blight. Although blight ravaged potato crops throughout Europe during the 1840s, the impact on the impact and human cost in Ireland, where one third of the population was entirely dependent on the potato for food, was exasperated by a host of political, social, and economic factors that remain the subject of historical debate. Yeah, like there were tons of potatoes and they were all basically being sent back to Britain. During the famine, Ireland produced enough food, flax, and wool to feed and clothe double its 9 million people. When Ireland had experienced a famine in 1782 and 83, ports were closed to keep Irish-grown food in Ireland to feed the Irish. Local food prices promptly dropped. Merchants lobbied against the export ban, but, gover but government in the 1980s overrode their protests. There was no such export ban in the 1840s. Some historians have argued that in this sense, the famine was artificial, caused by the British government's choice not to stop exports. Yup. Francis Boyle claimed that the government's actions violated sections A, B, and C of Article 2 of the blah, 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 blah. Basically, genocide. He used food and the lack thereof um, to produce genocide. The claims were contested by Peter Gray, who concluded that UK policy was not a policy of deliberate genocide, but a dogmatic refusal to admit that the policy was wrong. Okay, but <laughs> you're splitting hairs. James S. Donnelly Jr. wrote, while genocide was not in fact committed, what happened had the look of genocide to a great many Irish. <laughs> okay. It's not funny, but it's so Trumpism, I, or like Trumpy. I just, I can't, 
fake news. It wasn't a genocide. It just looks like a genocide by many of the people that think it's a genocide. Cecil Woodham Smith claimed that while the export policy embittered the Irish, this did not implicate the policy in genocide, but rather in excessive obtuseness, short-sightedness, and ignorance. Irish historian Cormac O'Grata rejects the term, stating that the English exhibited no desire to exterminate the Irish, yada, yada, yada. Okay, so basically... British are saying, no, no, man, we didn't commit genocide. And the Irish are like, yeah, yeah, you totally did. We had enough potatoes. That's the short version of it. Australian frontier wars. You're not getting off on this one, Australia. We might be worse. You might be smaller, but you still did the same shit. But you know what? It's really Europe. Sorry, Europe, but yeah. You're the common denominator here, you fuckers. I'm one of those fuckers. Uh, Australian Frontier Wars. According to one report published in 2009, in 1789, the British deliberately spread smallpox from the first fleet in order to counter overwhelming native tribes near Sydney and in New South Wales. In his book, An Indeniable Stain, Henry Reynolds described this act as genocide, However, the majority of scholars disagree that the initial smallpox was the result of deliberate biological warfare and have suggested other causes. The Black War was a period of conflict between British colonists and Aboriginal Tasmanians in Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, in the early 19th century. So the conflict, in combination with intru introducing diseases and other factors, had such devastating impacts on the Aboriginal Tasmanian population that it was reported that they had been exterminated. Historian Geoffrey Blaney wrote that in 1830, disease had killed most of them, but warfare and private violence had also been devastating. Smallpox was the principal cause for Aboriginal deaths in the 19th century. Lemkin and most other comparative genocide scholars present the extinction of the Tasmanian Aborigines as a textbook example of genocide, while the majority of Australian experts are more circumspect. Detailed studies of the events surrounding the extinction have raised questions about some of the details and interpretations in earlier histories. It is time for a more robust exchange between genocide and Tasmanian historical scholarship if we are to understand better what did happen in Tasmania. I would say that is a very fair look at things, but it doesn't serve anybody's agenda to be right, so it'll just get lost. On the Australian continent during the colonial period 1788 to 1901, the population of 500 to 750,000 Aboriginals uh, people was reduced to fewer than 50,000. Most were devastated by the introduction of alien diseases after contact with Europeans, while perhaps 20,000 were killed by massacres and fighting with colonists. At least the Native Americans gave syphilis to Christopher Columbus to bring back. I guess if you're looking for a silver lining, it's that some people's noses fell off their face because of their, they were too busy fucking or probably raping Native Americans. Yay. Okay, the Greeks. The Greek genocide refers to the fate of the Greek population of the Ottoman Empire during and after the First World War, essentially. Like Armenians and Assyrians, the Greeks were subjected to various forms of persecution, including massacres, expulsions, and death marches by young Turks. Mass killings of Greeks continued under the Turkish National Movement during the Greco-Turkish War phase of the Turkish War of Independence. George W. Rendell of the British Foreign Office, among other diplomats, noted that the massacres and deportations of Greeks during the post-Artemis, Ar I can't say that one, there's always a word, armistice period, I wanted to say Artemis because of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, to be honest, okay, Estimates of the number of um, Greeks killed range from 348,000 to 900,000. I don't know why one could be so specific and one is not, and there's a very wide range. Multiple documented instances, uh, and sorry to any statisticians listening to this, I'm sure your job is very difficult, but when I see these wide ranges, I'm like, the fuck, okay? 
Multiple, doc multiple documented instances of unnatural mass death occurred in the Soviet Union under Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin. Vladimir Putin? These include union-wide famines in the early 1920s and early 1930s and deportations of ethnic minorities. Soviet diplomatic efforts removed the extermination of political groups from the United Nations Convention on Genocide. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. This left many of the Soviet atrocities outside the United Nations definition of genocide because the atrocities targeted political or economic groups rather than the ethnic, racial, religious, or national groups listed in the UN Convention. I am not going to comment because it would just be a rage comment. Deduce what you'd like from that. During the Russian Civil War, the Bolsheviks engaged in a genocidal campaign against the Don Cossacks. The most reliable estimates indicate that out of a population of 3 million, between 300,000 and 500,000 were killed or deported in 1919 and 1920. During the Soviet famine of 1932 and 1933 that affected Ukraine, Kazakhstan, not trying again, and some densely populated regions of Russia, the highest scale of death was in Ukraine. The events there are referred to as the Holodomor. I just want to say Voldemort or Hodor. And they are recognized as genocide by the governments of Australia, Argentina, Georgia, Estonia, Italy, Canada, Lithuania, Poland, the U.S., and Hungary. The famine was caused by the confiscation of the whole 1933 harvest in Ukraine. Uh, a couple of other places, too. Densely, um, densely populated portions of Russia, essentially, and the Soviet Union. As a result, an estimated 10 million people died, including over 7 million in Ukraine, 1 million in um, North Kakaos, and 1 million elsewhere. A more American historian, Timothy Snyder, wrote of 3.3 million Soviet citizens, mostly Ukrainians, deliberately starved by their own government in Soviet Ukraine in 1932-1933. North Korea... In addition to the re requisitioning of crops and livestock in Ukraine, all food was compensated by the Soviet. So lack of food. I'm not going to keep going on over the statistics. You've heard it. Starve people to death. Super fun way to go. Not that there's any fun way to go by your government, but come on. Several scholars write that the killing on the basis of nationality and politics of more than 120,000 ethnic Poles in the Soviet Union from 1937 to 1938 was genocide. An official remarked that Poles living in the Soviet Union were to be completely destroyed. Under Stalin, the NKVD's Polish operation soon arrested some 144,000, of whom 111 were shot and surviving family members deported to Kazakhstan. I'm really Polish. I need to do some kind of DNA analysis to figure out how my family got over here. Anyway, in practice, abandoning its official socialist ideology of the fraternity of peoples, the Soviets, in their great terror of 1937 and 1938, targeted a national group as an enemy of the state. During their Polish operation against party enemies, the NKVD hit Soviet Poles and other Soviet citizens associated with Poland, Polish culture, and Roman Catholicism. The Polish ethnic character of the operation quickly prevailed in practice. Stalin was pleased at cleansing out the Polish filth, among with several different nationalities targeted in the Great Terror, such as Latvians, Estonians, Finns, Belarusians, etc. Ethnic Poles suffered more than any other group, though. In 1940, the Soviets also killed thousands of Polish POWs, among about 22,000 Polish citizens shot in a forest. Cool. The ethnic cleansing and deportation of the Crimean Tartars from Crimea was ordered by Joseph Stalin as a form of collective punishment for alleged collaboration with the Nazi occupation regime in Tarida subdistrict during 1942 and 1943. The state organized removal is known as. Oh, I'm not even going to. Sergunklik? 
that's 100% wrong. There are so many umlauts. Um, in Crimean Tartar, a total of more than 230,000 people were deported, the entire ethnic Crimean Tartar population, of more than which 100,000 people died of starvation and disease. Ukraine recognized the, recognizes the ethnic cleansing of the entire Tartar population as an act of genocide. There's that. The corpses and massacred victims with the Japanese soldiers standing nearby Nanjing, Nanking rather, I know how to say that, it's a J but it sounds like a K, Nanking, in 1937, during the Nanking Massacre, which was committed during the early months of the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese committed mass killings against the Chinese. Bradley Campbell described the Nanking Massacre as a genocide because the Chinese were unilaterally killed by the Japanese in mass during the aftermath of the Battle of the City, despite its unsuccessful and certain or it's it's successful and certain outcome rather. If you have never read The Rape of Nanking, Add it to your list. It's terrifying, but excellent, and everybody should read it. The Republic of China and Tibet. In the 1930s, the Republic of China's government supported Muslim warlord Ma Bufeng when he launched seven expeditions into Golong, causing the deaths of thousands of Tibetans. So that's still going on. It's really exciting. In Cambodia, genocide was carried out by the Khmer Rouge or the KR regime led by the Pol Pot between 1975 and 1979, in which an estimated one and a half to three million people died. Same tactics being used by Stalin and Mao. Um, so relocation um, from urban centers, torture, mass executions, forced labor, malnutrition, disease um, killed over 25% alone. So there's a memorial to the victims of the Rio Negro, um, Negro massacres during the Guatemalan Civil War between... I think it's supposed to be 140, 140, yeah, I'm pretty sure 140,000 and 200,000 people were estimated to have died and more than 1 million fled their homes and hundreds of villages were destroyed. They officially chartered historical cl uh, clarification um, and more than 93% of documented human rights violations in Guatemala's military government um, estimated Maya Indians accounted for 83% of the victims. Although the war lasted from 1960 to 1996, the Historical Clarification Commission concluded that genocide might have occurred between 1981 and 1983 when the government and guerrilla had the fiercest and bloodiest combat strategies. Oh, and oil. Look that one up. An academic consensus holds that the events that took place during the Bangladesh Liberation War constituted genocide as well. During the nine-month-long conflict, an estimated 300,000 to 3 million. Okay, that's like 10% of three. So, yeah, the 10%. How do we not know if it's 10% or 100% of people in this 300, in this three million figure. I just don't, I don't get that. Statisticians. If there is a statistician among the hundred people that listen to me, please let me know how it can be anywhere from 300,000 to 300 million people. Okay. So the academic consensus says that between 300,000 and 3 million people were killed, um, and the Pakistani armed forces raped between 200 and 400,000 Bangladeshi women and girls in an act of genocidal rape. Genocidal rape, that could be its own episode on its own, and I don't even know if I can. A 2008 study estimated that up to 269,000 civilians died in the conflict. The authors noted that this is far higher than two earlier estimates. Several million people in North Korea have died of starvation since the mid-1990s, with aid groups and human rights NGOs often stating that North Korean government has systematically and deliberately prevented food aid from reaching the areas most devastated by food shortages. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Barbara Demick's Nothing to Envy. That's the book. That is a fantastic read. I think it is maybe like 10 years old but I'm sure it still holds up. There are personal accounts from uh, North Korean defectors, actually. It's insane. Barbara Demick, nothing to envy. 95% that that, sure that that's what it's called. All right. 
So North Korea's government has been withholding food. Shit ton of people are dying. An additional one million people have died in North Korea's political prison camps, which are used to detain descendants and their entire families, including children, for perceived political offenses. So, like, everybody's encouraged to rat on one another, and then you and your entire family get sent to the North Korean gulag, essentially. In 2004, uh, Yad Vashim called on the international community to investigate political genocide in North Korea. In September 2001, a Harvard International Review article argued that the North Korean government was violating the UN Genocide Convention by systematically killing half-Chinese babies and members of religious groups. North Korea's Christian population, which was considered to be the center of Christianity in East Asia in 1945 and included 25 to 30 percent of the inhabitants of Pyongyang, has been systematically massacred and persecuted. As of 2012, 50 to 70,000 Christians were imprisoned in North Korea's concentration camps. Oh, I put it in my notes. I'm so smart. If you haven't read Barbara Demick's Nothing to Envy, get on it. As I kept digging, I found that almost every nation has some level of genocide. Fucking depressing, I know. Some more recent cases of genocide that provide a lot of data without doing much research include Somalia, the 2007 Bantu attacks, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Rwanda, Cambodia, Darfur, Sudan. These are um, most certainly genocide, in my opinion. And as I said, there's a lot of information on these specific ones, so I'm just not going to read things to you. One thing I am going to read to you, though, because I find it um, really applicable to today, even though it was written a few years ago, an article on Yemen by Mint Press News. Here's a detailed look at the U.S.-backed Saudi war against this tiny impoverished country to determine if what's happening in Yemen is genocide. And I'm quoting from this article. This is not my opinion. I'll let you know when it is. Uh, Killing civilians for the crime of simply being Yemeni. The U.S.-Saudi coalition warplanes deliberately target civilian infrastructure. They arbitrarily attack homes, farms, factories, schools, buses, gas stations, government buildings, water treatment facilities, and anything else imaginable. It seems their goal is to create as many civilian casualties as possible. Over the past three-plus years, U.S.-backed Saudi airstrikes have produced over 35,000 civilian casualties, over 13,000 killed, and over 21,000 injured, many of which are women and children. This figure, recorded by Yemeni Monitoring Group Legal Center for Rights and Development, only indicates stats from the 1,000-day mark of the war in December of 2017. Countless Countless others have lost their lives since then. It's difficult to summarize some of the most notable attacks due to the sheer number, but here are a few. A recent airstrike on a wedding producing over 88 casualties. An attack on a funeral in 2016, killing over 150 and injuring over 500. A previous attack on a wedding in 2015, killing over 130 and wounding hundreds more. Air raids on a refugee camp, killing a handful of children and babies. Countless attacks on homes, killing families of 10 to 20 countless attacks on markets filled with patrons. Those are just a handful of the worst attacks I could come up with off the top of my head, but there are several more. Not to mention, the Saudi coalition has also made a habit of performing double-tap airstrikes. After the first set of airstrikes, the warplanes returned to target ambulance crews, rescuers, and media personnel entering the scene. Although we can't read minds and the Saudi coalition would never admit this, it's very clear that their goal isn't to kill resistance fighters. Riyadh's goal is to kill Yemenis simply for being Yemeni. This would indicate that what's happening in Yemen is genocide. Famine and disease as a weapon. A man inspects a food factory Okay, so I am not going to continue to read my source notes. Apologies. Someday this will be edited out. Not today. 
Famine and disease isn't just an unintentional byproduct of the blockade. It's a weapon of war. Saudi Arabia imposed its blockade over Yemen shortly after revolutionary forces took control of the country's capital. In 2015, the land, air, and sea blockade severely restrict imports, exports, and the flow of movement. It is It shares a lot of similarities with Syria, in my opinion. Yemen imports nearly 80% of food, so the blockade has devastated the country. Over two-thirds of the population face famine or food insecurity. Riyadh and Abdubai... God, I couldn't say this. Abu Dhabi. Jeez, Abu Dhabi. Don't overthink it. Riyadh and Abu Dhabi are the gatekeepers of anything entering and leaving the country, including people. This embargo continued with a shortage of medical and sanitation equipment eventually triggered a cholera epidemic. From April 2017 until the end of the year, over 1 million people became infected with this very preventable, very treatable, and very fatal disease. Thousands died because they were not able to receive medical care in time. This created the largest cholera outbreak in the world. The blockade also limits government salaries for public employees. In Yemen, doctors, nurses, sanitation workers, teachers, engineers, and several other vital positions qualify as public employees. Many have sought work from private sector jobs due to the embargo. Although the outbreak has slowed down, Yemen now prepares to enter its rainy season, so local health officials expect the epidemic to pick up again. To top it off, hundreds reported diphtheria symptoms or diagnoses, another preventable yet fatal illness. Again, Riyadh's airstrike target seemed to prove that these epidemics are, in fact, a weapon of war. It's common for the Saudi coalition to target water treatment facilities and hospitals, even at the height of the cholera outbreak. Last summer, also at the height of the cholera epidemic, Saudi Arabia refused to allow fuel into Yemen to power water pumps. Psychological harm. The air. I'm still quoting from this article, BT Dubs. Uh, the airstrike targets and blockade provide evidence that the Saudi-led coalition intends to cause Yemeni civilians psychological harm. Sometimes drones and warplanes will simply hover over civilian neighborhoods without dropping bombs, just to create a heightened state of fear. Homes are frequent airstrike targets, likely designed to instill fear and deteriorate the mental state of civilians. The blockade and embargo serve as additional tools for manipulating the mental state of Yemenis through disease, famine, and despair. Inflicting psychological harm indicates that what's happening in Yemen is genocide. Destroying culture and heritage. Many people may not realize that the Saudi coalition has used this war to destroy most of Yemen's culture and ancient sites. After three years of assessing the damage, I believe the bombing is being done with a purpose, since many of these sites are not suitable or useful for military use, says Mohammed Amand. And he is the uh, Yemeni's General Organization of Antiquities um, at a museum in Sana'a. The Saudi royal family adheres to an intolerant ideology known as, oh God, please don't let this be an autocorrect, Wahhabism? Wahhabism. I don't know. Wahhabism. Anyway, they force this ideology onto their civilian population as well as punish anyone, sometimes with death, who does not follow the specific sect of Islam. Jews and Christians are not allowed to have places of worship inside the kingdom, while Jews can't even enter the country. Soup's cool. Yemen, good thing this stuff only happens on the other side of the world. <laughs> Yemen, on the other hand, is historically pluralist. Multiple sects live, in so live side by side in peace, although Saudi Arabia uses tactics to create sectarianism in Yemen. The populace remains more unified than ever. Wow. wonder what that must be like. It's important to point this religious aspect known as Tafarkism out before mentioning that Saudi warplanes frequently target mosques and cemeteries. They punish all non-Wahhabis <laughs> at home. Why wouldn't they punish abroad? Besides mosques, Saudi airstrikes have also destroyed many of Yemen's prized archaeological sites. Yemen is one of the oldest centers of civilization. People have inhabited cities like Sa'ana for thousands of years. As a result, Yemen is home to several incredible ancient sites. 
The Saudis were given information of important cultural heritage sites, including exact coordinates by UNESCO, said archaeologist Sarah Japp of Berlin's German Archaeological Institute. In 2015, Saudi jets damaged the historic Marib Dam, the construction of which dates back to the 8th century BC. Its walls contained scripture detailing ancient laws and customs, and this site as a whole is specifically mentioned in the Quran. It's that old. Saudi warplanes also destroyed the regional museum of Damar along with thousands of ancient artifacts from 280 CE. Additional archaeological targets include Aden's medieval Sira fortress along with over 60 other key historical sites. The strange thing is that the rate of fetal abnormalities is growing and doctors cannot explain the causes, meaning that the phenomenon would be attributed to war and ordinances, given the fact that a great proportion of women with deformed fetuses hailed from bombarded areas in the provinces of Sadaha, Sana'a, Taziz, Hudaytha, Yemeni Dr. Abdulakram al Najar said, oh God, I botched that like such a fucking Midwestern white woman. The blockade also makes adequate medical care difficult to come by and pregnant women are the most vulnerable. Same. This certainty certainty can't be a coincidence. Disease and famine have dire effects on developing fetuses. Yeah. And stress just in general. Preventing healthy birth suggests that Saudi Arabia's war against Yemen is genocide, rape as a weapon of war. Yemeni women demonstrate in support of Fatima, who was raped by the Sudanese soldier. Saudi or UAE-backed mercenaries frequently rape Yemeni women to instill fear and project power. In one notable instance, a Sudanese mercenary in Hodesh province raped a Yemeni woman when she told the local authorities Emirati troops apprehended her and forced her to sign a document promising that she would deny the event ever happened. Any parallels to the United States currently? Okay, that's enough time to draw those conclusions. All right, controlling children. A girl stands in a doorway as she watches children receiving a polio vaccination during a house-to-house polio immunization campaign in Sana'a, Yemen, Monday, November 9th, 2015. A national three-day anti-polio immunization campaign to vaccinate more than 5 million children across Yemen began on Monday. Saudi Arabia's current and historical oppression of Yemen was has devastating effects on the well-being of children in several ways. Human trafficking is an epidemic in Yemen. In many cases, young boys are the main victims. These young boys are often transported across the northern border into Saudi Arabia where they work unskilled labor or whatever else the abductors want. Last year, Saudi Arabia um, mercenaries kidnapped a young girl named Bouthiana, a week or two prior to the kidnapping, Riyadh's warplanes destroyed her home using U.S. bombs. She was the only survivor. According to her uncle, Saudi forces kidnapped them both in Aden and forced them to relocate to Riyadh. From there, Saudi Arabia used Buithiania, oh God, I know I'm not saying that right, I'm sorry, girl, to start a propaganda war against Yemen's resistance. They claimed the bomb that destroyed Buithiania's home came from... Ansurla, oh God, the Houthi fighters as opposed to Saudi warplanes, despite international organizations stating otherwise. So convenient. It's also common for the Saudi coalition to kidnap families and children while they attempt to reach airports to flee the country for medical care or for any other reason. God. By Saudi Arabia's own justification, their war in Yemen is genocide. Riyadh's own justification for waging war proves that what's happening in Yemen is genocide. Saudi Arabia portrays the conflict as a war against rebels to uh, to reinstate the so-called legitimate government. You can read more about this in a detailed report on the war's origins, um, and I will have that on Saudi or on the um, on Twitter rather. 
I'm, as the episodes go on, I just get numb as I'm reading all of this just horrible shit. Anyway, to go on, Saudi warplanes destroy a warehouse and education center honoring martyrs. The Saudi accusation of Iran's involvement in Yemen goes, Yemen goes much deeper than what Western readers may realize. Rather than just accusing, um, I can't say this, it's essentially a division of Iranians, okay? So it's the Ansarula, and I know that is 100% wrong. Um, so I'm going to say Iranian military support, Saudi military officials and clerics, all members of this crypto Persians. That's the, uh, the, uh, like the other meaning for this group, crypto Persians. I can pronounce that. Um, by using this false narrative, Riyadh does not need to present evidence of Iran arming uh, crypto-Persians because with this false narrative, crypto-Persian members are ethnically Iranian. Okay, so there we tie it back. Since under this false narrative, crypto-Persians, I'm so sorry to anybody that knows this word and is screaming right now, you are smarter than I, okay? Um... Since uh, under this false narrative, crypto Persians, cryptocurrency, crypto Persians, um, members are Iranian. Saudi Arabia can paint itself as an Arab savior, rescuing Arab Yemenis from the crypto Persians. So crypto Persians is a broad political movement, contrary to what uh, the mainstream media says with terms like Shiite militias. This movement contains several Islamic sects and political groups under one banner of resistance to foreign interference. However, if we use the official Saudi narrative about crypto Persians, then what's happening in Yemen is genocide against Persians. What's happening in Yemen is genocide, but members of the crypto Persians aren't Persian. Not to mention members... Okay, the, I'm just going to stop quoting this article because now it's just getting to be a bit too um, specific, I think, to people that truly have like a fair understanding of the differences of uh, the, the part of the world um, and the faith that I just simply do not have a background to be able to speak to. So um, all of the details have been put out and I will link... Uh, to the article so that you can see it in its entirety. But um, basically, for the last three years, Saudi Arabia and their coalition have deliberately killed, starved, raped, inflicted physical and psychological torture and forced disease upon Yemeni, Yemeni civilians. Why? simply for being Yemeni. Riyadh's U.S.-backed airstrikes and blockade do not discrimi discriminate against religious sects or political leanings. So Jamal Khashoggi's murder is finally bringing this to light in America. But will we do anything about that? Again, we people, humans, not the UN, not America specifically, humans. Or will we continue to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia? I think I know the answer for the next two years anyway. By the way, if you love Trump, this isn't the podcast for you. Even though it's not a political podcast, I find Donald Trump and his administration to be offensive to every fiber of my being. That will seep out sometimes. So, why is it taboo to label mass killings genocide? Would you be surprised to know that the answer is political? I know. I wasn't shocked either. It's my belief that the label of genocide is tantamount to the label of terrorist. The feelings that those words evoke and implore us to act. And if we don't assign those labels, we can sit back and be complacent and do nothing. So... Like climate change and gun control, the problem feels so big that we just become apathetic. And a big old case of NIMBY kicks in, which stands for not in my backyard. As a lifelong realtor, NIMBY affects everyone. This has been a long episode, and trust me, it could have been way longer. I chopped about half of my notes. You're welcome. I want this episode to serve as a conversation starter. Like I want all episodes to really uh, serve as it's really just a, a conversation starter. Here are some stats. Look some things up. Why is this taboo? Why is it not taboo? Um, why should we be thinking about this issue as opposed to just Netflix and chilling, you know? Um, and I think as 
Americans, we have the luxury to sit back and be apathetic a lot of the time. Um, but a lot of us just don't want to. And I think that um, a lot of people now with Jamal Khashoggi are waking up to what is actually going on in Yemen uh, as there is focus, renewed focus on Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think it's something that is going to impact us for decades to come if we don't get this right. And um, we all know how an action in Darfur in Sudan um, had played out. And I have given a pretty thorough overview of um, all of the atrocities that happen um, when we just keep our eyes closed and we turn our backs. And I think we now are forced to face this issue in Yemen specifically because our president, and now I'm going to just say I am getting political, um, has decided that the our you know GDP is more important than being viewed as a you know moral figure on the world stage. Which I know he has no concern about our view on the world stage. He has no concern about anything other than himself and his money. Um, but nonetheless, after he dies, our country is still left here burning to the ground, literally, uh, due to climate change. Um, but we're still left here and we still have to be able to be some kind of moral leader, I think, anyway. Um, I don't think that we just say, hey, China, your problem now. We're just gonna be, you know, brazenly the dumb fucks that we've always been, but with the cloak of, um, you know, honor and superiority over us. And to anybody thinking that I'm speaking really ill of our country, um, maybe I am. Uh, there are several aspects of our country that are freaking fantastic. We're not the best in the world by any metric, really. Um, we're not the freest. Uh, we're not the most successful. We're none of those things, but we certainly are a wonderful country. And I... <laughs> hate saying this, but to date, I still would rather live here than anywhere else unless I could get like a really cush place in like Norway or something. But um, my family's here and I love it. And I think our country is great. And I think a lot of the, um, the lore around our country is something that is aspirational. We've never been there. The good old days make America great again. That's all bullshit because we've never been great. We've always been an oppressive nation um, as this uh, again shows. And I think that um, just recognizing that we are uh, very guilty of whitewashing our own history is just something that we need to be cognizant of. So fake news. Yeah. All of that. Um, differing perspectives that can contribute, but also just follow the money. <laughs> I always say that to my husband, but just follow the money. And in this case, just follow the money, our money going to Saudi Arabia, what's Saudi Arabia, Arabia doing with the money and what are their motivations? And anyway, now that I've just blabbered on that this was not how I intended to close the podcast, but um, I hope that it inspires some conversation for you to do some research on the ongoing genocides. The one in Yemen is probably the most talked about right now, but there um, are certainly other outliers that um, deserve attention as well. Anyhow, this could have been a way longer episode, as I said. Um, but thank you for listening to this episode of Taboo and Murder. Oh, <laughs> never going to be done with this podcast. Um, fun thing for me, anyway. For the first time, someone asked if I would do a question and answer episode. And I'm like, hell yeah. Here's a problem. I would love to, but I need like nine or so more people to send in questions before that could be a thing. So if you have any topic suggestions or questions, please reach out on Twitter at SMTaboo. Also, as always, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It means so much. iTunes is like the leader of the podcast gang world. world. Gotta kiss the ring? Did I mix too many metaphors? Maybe. Anyway, which episode would you like us to drop next? cannibalism or necrophilia. Thanks for listening.